0: For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we get started in our study of God's Word, let's ask God's direction and guidance in our study this morning. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that we have your word, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Father, it is your word that has absolute authority in all things that it addresses. And Father, as we come together now, we come with an attitude of humility to submit our thinking to your revelation, that as we study these things, we might come to a greater understanding of your plans and your purposes in history and for the future that we may see and understand how we fit into this uh, magnificent plan, that we might be encouraged, stimulated, motivated for our future role in your kingdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Angels are real, the Bible says. The devil is real. And the demons are real. There is a genuine war that goes on in an invisible realm, invisible to us today, one that we cannot see, that we cannot touch, that we cannot taste, yet nevertheless we know that this is going on because of what God has revealed to us in the scriptures. And this is not some abstract doctrine that's just deals with another realm of creatures that somehow uh, might seem somewhat mythological to some at places but that it is very real because the, the focal point of all history which took place on the cross took place on Golgotha that there when Jesus Christ was hung on that cross not only was that a the centerpiece of human history where the sins of mankind were paid for but it is the centerpiece of this cosmic conflict that began in eternity past when this creature named uh, Satan or Lucifer, as he sometimes called, rebelled against God. And so that to understand where we are in our place in history, in this tiny little spot that we all hold in our individual lives, we must fit it within the context, not just of human history, not just of biblical prophecy, but also of the entire scope of how that fits within this this broader conflict. So we've taken time, because of the mention of angels in Revelation chapter 5, uh, verse 11, and because of the emphasis on angels in the book of Revelation to step back and engage in a somewhat topical study or series on the angelic conflict and the more i'm getting back into a study of the angelic conflict the more i see its relevance and it's uh, for the study of the next uh, chapters of revelation from chapter 6 through chapter 19 the events there are can't be understood unless we have a proper understanding of everything related to the angelic conflict to angels satan and to demons as i've pointed out the last few weeks there are approximately 175 to 180 uses of just the word angelos in the New Testament. The reason there's a variance there is it depends on which text you consult. There's a couple of uh, textual variants here or there uh, that make a difference. But you have approximately 175 uses of the word angelos in the Greek New Testament, and approximately 65 of those, which... just a little uh, a little more than a third are in these chapters of revelation that tells us how significantly just by proportion those of you who have been coming on Sunday night to learn how to study the Bible understand that uh, one of the laws of Bible study an observation is uh, one is repetition, one is proportion one is Um, have to do with contrast and comparison and all these different things that you look for and so it's important at times to just see how many times a word is mentioned even within a particular passage because it tells us what the focal point of that particular passage is so we started off looking at the doctrine of the angelic conflict briefly that this has to do with an invisible spiritual warfare or rebellion among the angels directed toward God and that in eternity past, when this took place, sometime between Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2, there was uh, this revolt, and approximately one-third of the angels um, followed Lucifer in his rebellion, and they were tried at that time by God and sentenced to the lake of fire. We know this because Matthew 25:41 uses a past tense to talk about the fact that the lake of fire has already been prepared for the devil and his angels and that raises a question as to why they're not there if it's created for them and they've already been sentenced or condemned to the lake of fire why have they not been sent there and so when you start comparing scripture with scripture doctrine with doctrine and you begin to look at a number of emphases in scripture we come to realize that human history is related to this broader conflict and that the postponement of that condemnation is related to what is going on in or within human history. So we will develop these things as we go along and as to exactly what those details are, but I've, we started with the existence of angels and just some preliminary information. It's almost Uh, runs into sort of like a grocery list of data about angels, uh, which may get a little tiresome for some of you, but it's amazing how many little facts about angels people don't understand, and they've come up with all sorts of myths and uh, erroneous ideas down through the centuries that people die, and then they go to heaven and become an angel, and they all sit around on a cloud and play harp, and all these different images that people have that all angels are white and have uh, two wings, variety of other uh, things like that. So we need to step back and just talk about basic biblical information about angels, which is what we've done the last couple of weeks. We started off a- answering the question, how do we know that angels exist? Because they are revealed in Scripture. There's biblical evidence in 34 of the 66 books of the Bible. There are various terms for angels. The primary term is malach in the Old Testament and angelos in the New Testament, used over 300 times. Plus, there's other terms such as cherubs, seraphs, archangel. They're referred to as princes, as as powers, as principalities, as spiritual demons are referred to as spiritual wickedness in high places, Uh, thrones and dominions. They're referred to in the Old Testament as sons of God. All these different references add up, and they tell us that a major, major emphasis in Scripture relates to these uh, creatures that are beyond physical. They are immaterial. We saw last time that they seem to have bodies that are composed uh, of light. We see that Jesus Christ referred to them frequently, numerous things, in his ministry, he's not simply accommodating himself to the superstition of the people of his day or their ignorance, but that he is affirming the existence of angels and teaches about them. We went on to talk about the creation of angels and their nature. That First of all, I pointed out that they were creatures and went to a couple of verses like Psalm 148.5, which talks about the fact that they came into existence. They are created by God and thus they are not... Uh, more powerful than God. Now, i got a question of clarification that came up uh, this last week related to what I said last time about the fact that the angels were created uh, individually by God. In other words, each angel is its own species. There's no intermarriage between angels. And really, this is a deduction that's derived from several passages. First of all, we recognize that the Bible portrays angels or does not portray angels as sexual creatures. They do not have male and female as you have human beings. They're always represented as male when they do appear. It doesn't appear that they have a sexuality. They do not marry according to Matthew 22, verse 30. The conclu- conclusion from that is that since angels are not sexual by nature, they don't seem to have a reproductive system then angels do not reproduce other angels therefore each angel must be created uh, individually and this is confirmed by the fact that in the old testament as i pointed out last time they're called sons of god now you get into the new testament it talks about uh believers as sons of god adopted as sons of god but it's a totally different context in the new testament from the Old Testament. The Old Testament consistently uses the term sons of God to describe angels because they are directly created by God. That is, their source of origin is God, whereas human beings are referred to as sons of men. And you have that phrase, sons of men, in numerous passages, such as Genesis 11.5, that the sons of men were rebelling against God at the Tower of Babel. Uh, Psalm four, verse two, Ecclesiastes one thirteen and two three, and then I gave a reference in Daniel five. I think I said Daniel five twenty one, and somebody looked that up, and I pulled that out of some notes I had in seminary, and it was a my seminary. I'll blame it on my seminary professor. Had a typo in the notes. It's Daniel two thirty eight, and also Micah five seven. We know that angels were created before man and they, therefore they're not the des- departed spirits of human beings. We also saw that they were immaterial spirit beings that but they have the ability to take on physical characteristics of human beings. We saw that angels don't die, that angels are invisible to mankind but they can make themselves visible and apparently the ability or the timing of that is dependent upon God's sovereign will. In the Old Testament, it was a uh, the angels did manifest themselves at particular times related to key uh, revelatory events. For example, at uh, Mount Sinai, or we can go back further than that, we can talk about their their appearance to Abraham at key times in Abraham's life. Uh, at the time of Moses, time of Elijah and elisha, uh, there were times when God enabled men to see angels, also in times of uh, important revelation, such as with Daniel when he was writing portions of the Book of Daniel. but this wasn't normative in the Old Testament. there were if you added up all the people in the Old Testament period that saw angels, you would come up with probably less less than twenty individuals that Uh, witnessed or saw angels this was not something that was common it was extremely uncommon was not normative or related to the spirituality of these individuals sometimes you'll hear people say well if we just really believed god or trusted god we're really spiritual then we could we could see angels and that's just not uh, not biblical we saw that angels are rational and personal creatures. They have all the manifestations of personality. They think, they have volition, they uh, have uh, various concerns. And so uh, Second Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy 2.6 talks about how people are taken captive by Satan at his will so that they have volition, they have mentality, they have uh, Powers, incredible powers, far beyond the powers of human beings, but nevertheless, they're still uh, creatures. We also saw that the number of angels is 10,000 times 10,000. It's innumerable, myriads upon myriads. We looked at when angels were created, and Job 38 4 is an important clue. 38 4 through 7. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Uh, the Lord asked Job. And then in verse 7, which I don't have on the slide, he says, when the sons of God, when all the sons of God sang for joy, when uh, he laid the foundations of the earth, indicating that they all sang for joy, they were united at that time at the beginning of creation, there was not a split at that time, and it also uh, indicates that this split had to have occurred subsequent to the immediate Uh, foundation of the earth so we put up this chart last time that you have various stages of creation initially God creates the heavens which is the uh, just it's just a box as it were when we think of the heavens what do you think of you think of the starry sky stars aren't created though until the fourth day so you have the heavens are obviously created without anything in them it's a it's a spatial term So you have the creation of the space-time universe and the earth. That's Genesis 1-1. And then Genesis 1-2 tells us that something happened which produced a chaotic uh, situation on the earth. Darkness covered the face of the earth. And man could, uh, I mean, there's no creatures. There's nothing. It's cold in absolute darkness. it's, It's frozen. You have chaos on the face of the deep, so it's covered in ice. The deep is a term for water. So the initial creation would be that which is referred to as Eden, the Garden of God, in Ezekiel uh, chapter 28. Then there's this uh, c- this uh, scenario of judgment, and then a restoration of the planet that takes place in verses... Uh, 3 down through chapter 2 verse 3 and so there is an original creation that is somehow marred it seems that there's some sort of judgment related to, to sin and then the earth now that time period in there doesn't have to be a very long time period the overall implication of scripture is that this is is not a long time period uh, unfortunately in the early 19th century you had some, some uh, theologians who thought that uh, that evolutionists were coming up with a pretty good idea that the earth was maybe tens of thousands at that point it was only tens of thousands of years old so they thought well maybe we can cram it in here between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 and that was an inappropriate uh, action actually the view that there is a gap between 1-1 and 1-2 goes back as early as the Targum of Jonathan in the second century AD and was understood by many down through church history is the time where Satan fell they, it doesn't fit to put his fall sometime in the middle of the first week of creation or subsequent to that so this would be the time when Satan fell the angels were created prior to the foundation of the earth Genesis 1-1 but then there is this fall that occurs before Genesis, uh, Genesis 1-3 now Let's go on to the next uh, section, which is just talking about angels, because there's different categories of angels, different ranks of angels and types of angels. And the first thing we should note is that there, there seems to be this angelic council that surrounds the throne of God, and there's, there's discussion that takes place between God and these angels that come before him. This is referenced in Psalm 89 verses 5 through 8. Psalm 89 is an important chapter because it is a meditation on the Davidic covenant. And so as you have this covenant that is stated and given by God to David, there is also reference to the fact that this is witnessed to by the heavens just as Moses had called upon the heavens and the earth to witness the Mosaic Covenant. So there is a heavenly witness to the Davidic Covenant. Now, when we have that word heavens, it's not talking about the the physical heavens. It's not talking about the starry skies. It's uh, not talking about the space that God created there in Genesis one one. It's talking about the inhabitants of the heavens, which is the angels. And this we see in Psalm 89. The first four verses give us an introduction, focus our attention on God's grace in giving the covenant uh, to David in verses which is described in verses 3 and 4. And then there is a pause. That's why you have Selah at the end of verse 4 and the subject shifts in verse 5. Verse 5 is a statement of praise "...for this covenant." And we read in verse 5, "...the heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord." And then the next line says, "...your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones." Now, if we break that down, what we have is a, is a subject in the first clause, the heavens. A statement that, uh, of the verb that the heavens will praise something. What they praise is your wonders." The second stanza focuses on the object of praise again, and so your faithfulness is parallel to your wonders. So you have an A, B, C in the first line. A, The A term is the heavens. The B term is the verb will praise. The C term is your, your wonders. When you get into the second line, it begins with the C term, which is the object of praise, your faithfulness. The B term, the verb will praise, is left out. It's assumed from the first line. So we could we could insert if we wanted to. Your faithfulness also will be praised. And then the A term is in the assembly of the holy ones. So that the parallel, the, the synonymous parallelism here is between the heavens in the first line and the assembly of the holy ones in the second line. You see, the heaven simply stands for... That group which inhabits the heavens, which is the angels, and so what we learn in the second stanza, though is not just that there are angels the they're referred to here as the kadhimm, the holy ones that they are uh, that they exist, but that they exist as an assembly, a group that would gather together and encircle the throne of God. Verse six goes on to say, "For who in the skies is comparable." To the Lord, who among the sons of the mighty? And here we have the phrase in the Hebrew "bene El. This is the, similar to the phrase you have in Genesis six three, the "bene ha Elohim." Sometimes it's you have God mentioned in this phrase as Elohim, and sometimes as El. Sometimes the article is there; that's "bene ha Elohim." Sometimes there's no article, "bene Elohim." But this is a term that always refers to angels in the Old Testament. So it's talking about who among the sons of the uh, sons of God is like the Lord, literally. I don't know why they, somebody translated it sons of mighty. It misses the point. It's the sons of God emphasizing that these are angels who are participating in this assembly. Verse 7, we read, A God greatly feared in the council of the holy ones. Again, we're told that they meet as this council and awesome above all those who are around him. And literally in the Hebrew, it means all those who encircle... Or surround him. So the picture that we have here is very similar to the picture we have in Isaiah 6 3, where uh, Isaiah comes before the throne of God, and then around the throne of God you have the seraphs singing, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. It's similar to the scenario that we see in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, where you have God on his throne at the centerpiece. He is surrounded by the four living creatures. He is surrounded by the angels and of course at that time by a a group of human beings, the 24 elders. So it is this picture of this counselor, this large assembly that surrounds the throne of God. Then in verse 8 we read, O Lord God of hosts, who is like you, O mighty God, Almighty Lord. Your faithfulness always surrounds you. Now, now we're going to take time to really deal with all the uh, facets of this verse. We have a reemphasis on faithfulness in verse 8 that goes back to the mention of faithfulness in verse 5. And the point of all this is, is that the angels serve as sort, sort of courtroom witnesses. That's, that's the idea here, and that's one of the points that I'm going to emphasize again and again as we go through these passages, is that there is this... Uh, heavy emphasis that you find in various passages in Scripture on this courtroom terminology. I mean, the very term that is used to describe Satan is a legal term for an adversary in the courtroom. So that's why when we come back to making this theological deduction that there is this courtroom trial in, in heaven before the... Uh, after Satan falls, before they're condemned, and so, at some time there is this challenge by Satan of God's uh, justice, his righteousness, his, his desire to put his creatures into an eternal lake of fire, that this doesn't just drop out of somebody's imagination, but it, it flows out of a whole matrix of verses that set up this kind of a judicial framework. When we get into dealing with your salvation, your salvation is talked about within the framework of courtroom judicial terminology. Words like uh, justification, imputation, forgiveness, all of these terms are, are words that are used in uh, courtroom terminology, the fact that we have to be justified before God, so when we come to understanding the the ultimate framework for understanding how God is dealing with his creatures it 's within this framework of justice it's, It presupposes that there are legal absolutes that God has established to which He adheres in the dealing with his. ...with his creatures, and he calls upon the angels as witnesses within the outworking of human history. That's why when Moses reinforces or, or reminds the Jews in Deuteronomy of the covenant established at Mount Sinai, he calls upon the heavens and the earth as witnesses. We know from the Mosaic Law that a contract needed two witnesses, so he calls upon the inhabitants of the heavens, the angels to be one witness to this covenant between God and Israel. And he calls upon human beings to stand as the inhabitants of the earth, to stand as the other uh, witnesses. So it's, it's this legal concept. That's the same thing that is going on here in Psalm 89, that the heavens, that is the angels, the mighty ones, the assembly of the saints are witnesses to God's faithfulness in carrying out the Davidic covenant, which promised an eternal seed, an eternal dynasty, an eternal kingdom to the descendants of David. And this culminates in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the greater son of David, who will return in the future and establish the throne of David uh, in the millennial kingdom. So we see how all of this uh, fits together. And even in this passage, that is a meditation on the Davidic covenant, there is just this allusion uh, to these kinds of things. Just as a side note, if you were to skip down to verse 14, we read a very important verse. This is one of the most, uh, I think, one of the most crucial theological statements in all of the Psalms. The statement that righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. This emphasizes the foundation of the throne of God and all of God's dealings are righteousness and justice. Therefore, if you're ever going to talk about righteousness or justice, if you're a law student and you're going to study law or if you are involved with any kind of contractual uh, work, the starting point for understanding anything uh, related to law or contract starts with the Bible and starts with God. It doesn't start with human experience. So everything goes back to... Who God is, because He is the one who defines the, these concepts and righteousness and justice are the foundation of all that He does, and as a result of righteous, his righteousness and justice and mercy and truth can go out out to the nations. Now we have another picture of this convocation or this council that appears before the throne of God in a couple of other passages in the Old Testament. One of them is in Job chapter One. So just turn over in your in your Bible to job chapter One. Verse six. Someday we'll get a chance to go through Job. It's a fascinating study but Job is a story of a man who goes through incredible suffering and he doesn't know that it's part of a greater scenario and the greater scenario is revealed to us in verses 6 through 12 and that greater scenario is the angelic conflict and this this conflict between Satan and God but the only thing I want to address here is the information related to an angelic uh, council verse 6 now there was a day when the sons of God now what does that mean these are the angels, the Bene Ha Elohim. Same term that we have in Genesis 6-3. Similar term to what we just saw in Psalm 89. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, before Yahweh and Satan also came among them. Now what does that tell us? That tells us that this term sons of God includes both fallen angels and the holy angels. It also tells us that even uh, at this time, all of the the angels, both fallen angels and holy or elect angels, are meeting, will meet together before God. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered to the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. So he, he, they, they don't always meet before God, but there were these regular meetings that took place and at those times, Satan would come and he challenges God. That's the emphasis of his name, Shatan, meaning adversary or accuser. There, in chapter 2, there's various events that take place after that initial council, and I, I, don't, I don't want to go into those, just skip to chapter 2. This is a subsequent event. Verse 1 of chapter 2 says, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. So the point is that simply that there are these, this council of angels that surrounds the throne of God. There's another term that is used for this, this, the group of angels, primarily referring to the holy angels or the elect angels, and that's this word that I have re- inserted in Hebrew in Psalm 89, 8. Where we read, O Lord God of hosts, and the word there in the Hebrew is sabah, a plural of it is sabaoth. The ot is your uh, one of the ways to express a plural in in Hebrew, and sabah uh, has to do with uh, host is really an antiquated term. It is a term that describes an army. And even today, it is a term that describes the army of Israel. Now, a student at Schaeffer Seminary came up with this, found this particular cartoon somewhere, which has a lot of interesting facets to it because it's a great uh, propaganda. You know, you'd think somebody in America could come up with something good good like this. And what it says in Hebrew at the top is ruach, and then you have sachal, which is not really a word. It is an acronym. You have three letters. I'll point them out to you. This is the first letter right here. Remember, Hebrew reads from right to left. Uh, this first letter is sabah. The second letter, the ha, stands for haganah, which is means the army or the defense. Which means, uh, excuse me, the defense. And the haganah, if you know anything about uh, Israeli history, the haganah was, is a term for the army. And that was the term that was used. Prior to for for the army and the defense, uh, prior to the uh, the War of Independence in 1948, and the the last letter is a Lamed, that is a preposition that is affixed to Israel, Israel, which means to Israel. So literally, the in this you'll see on all of the shoulder patches on the Israeli army is this acronym the. The Tzadi Hey Lamed, meaning the the army, the host, the army for the defense of Israel, and so you see that today. Now, I just thought I'd point that out. It's notice how you have the Israeli soldier standing to protect the family, and you have the the Palestinian terrorists hiding behind his family, willing to sacrifice. The uh, innocence in order to achieve his aim. mean that, that's tremendous message and that, uh, it's amazing that Americans just aren't bright enough to come up with stuff like this. I mean but this portrays the issue. Anyway, that gets beside the point of uh, what we're talking about here with the angels, that there is this convocation of angels, and they're referred to by the, the holy angels are referred to as the army of God. He is called Yahweh. Sabaoth, which is the plural, the Lord of Hosts, indicating that there are numerous angelic armies, and he is pictured as the commander-in-chief over these particular uh, armies. And so this shows once again that there is this conflict, there's this military terminology that is used again and again to describe uh, the angels and the angelic army. So when we look at the fact that the Bible uses, on the one hand, judicial terminology related to some sort of judicial challenge, uh, judgment on the angels, and on the other hand, you have conflict terminology, warfare terminology, military terminology that's used again and again to describe this, this conflict, that human history fits squarely in the middle of this, this huge uh, war that has taken place uh, among the angels, and we have uh, a role to play within that. You can't understand human history without... Now uh, We're running out of time, so I'm not going to get into the next little section I have, but I thought I'd just bring up one more uh, chapter for you where we see a picture of this uh, angelic uh, convocation that takes place and this is in uh, 1 Kings uh, chapter 22. This is one of those passages a lot of people don't like to go to. Uh, challenges everybody's uh, worldview a little bit and understanding of Scripture, which I think is very important. My, uh, 1 Kings chapter 22 talks about this war that develops between... Uh, Syria and Israel verse 2 reads it came to pass in the third year that Jehoshaphat the king of Judah that's the southern kingdom went, went, went to visit the king of Israel and the king of Israel said to his servants don't you know that Ramoth and Gilead is ours this is over on the trans Jordan side but we hesitate to take it out of the hand of the king of Syria see the same fights are still going on today now, now Syria wants the Golan Heights back and Israel does not want to give up the Golan Heights same kind of thing it's just been going on for centuries Well, in the midst of this, you have Ahab, who's the king of Judah. I mean, Ahab, who's the king of Israel, excuse me, and Jehoshaphat's the king of Judah. And so Jehoshaphat shows a a little orientation. And verse 5 wants to have Ahab inquire for the word of the Lord. Go check it with the prophets to see if we ought to go to battle at this particular time. And so uh, Ahab isn't very pleased with this. And, but he calls together his prophets, and by this time he's basically staffed his uh, prophet council with yes-men. And so they all tell him that uh, God is going to give him uh, victory. And so the king of Israel says, well, let's get somebody in here we can trust. He, smells the, he understands the problem, smells a rat there. And Micaiah, the son of Imlah, is brought in in verse 9 in order to give the truth. And Ahab doesn't like that because he says uh, Micaiah just always uh, never substantiates anything. I say he always gives me information I don't want. He doesn't tell me what I want to hear. But uh, Micaiah is a genuine prophet of the Lord. And so in the midst of this, Micaiah comes and in verse 17 he gives the answer to the question he says I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains, mountains as sheep that have no shepherd and the Lord said these have no master let each return to his house indicating of course that the leader of the army or the king would be killed and the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat did I not tell you uh, he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil see it just, he just hates me so Micaiah says therefore in verse 19 hear the word of the Lord I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. There's that heavenly council again. And all the host of heaven standing by, all the armies of heaven standing by on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will persuade Ahab to go up that he may fall at Ramoth Gilead? So one spoke in this manner and another spoke in that manner Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord says in verse 22, in what way? So he, that is this spirit who is a uh, fallen angel, says, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. Now what this shows, just like you saw in Job, is that there's this heavenly assembly. And before Satan can do anything to Job, he's got to get God's permission. And the same thing is happening here is you see the sovereignty of God in his control. Evil is not totally chaotic. It is under the control of God. And God is going to allow Satan and the demons to do uh, what they do, but under his control for the outworking of his purposes in human history. And so First Kings 22 simply shows once again... That what's happening in human history on the battlefield between uh, Israel and Judah versus the king of Syria, that what shapes and determines the events of human history is something that is going on in the angelic realm. So that we can't understand human history at all without locating it within the broader scope of the angelic conflict. Now next time we'll come back and look at the different categories of angels which will introduce us to cherubs and that will take us directly to the greatest of all cherubs who is, who is Satan or as he is, was, is called traditionally Lucifer, Halel bin Shahar in Isaiah chapter 14. We have to address a number of important issues in Isaiah chapter 14 because that has become... Uh, in our time somewhat of a, of a controversy since I mentioned this last week I think several people have gone home, checked their study Bibles and realized that, that uh, there are various study Bibles that uh, do not affirm that those passages that you've always heard talked about the fall of Satan refer to the fall of Satan and this is something that's come up in just the last uh, 30 or 40 years so because it has been made an issue we have to understand it to some degree that we might be uh, forewarned and forearmed. So we'll get into uh, classification of angels, finish that up next time, and into the original fall of Satan and the introduction of evil into the universe. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we're so thankful that we have your word to give us this insight that Apart from Revelation, we would have no knowledge about angels, about demons, about Satan, and we would not understand how human history is a part of this uh, vast angelic conspiracy and rebellion, and therefore we would be uncertain as to why we exist in this significance, or at least that dimension of the significance of our spiritual life. Father, we also pray that there's anyone here this morning that's, Unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain understanding that their life is is part of this global cosmic conflict uh, that runs throughout the universe and that the focal point was Jesus Christ his death on the cross and that he died for each one of us and that means that if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ you need to realize Christ died for you he paid the penalty for your sins so that right now As you sit there in the privacy of your soul, you can make a decision to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. When you trust in him, that instant God imputes to you the righteousness of Christ, declares you justified, gives you eternal life that can never be taken uh, from you. It's your decision where you will spend eternity. Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand the things we study today. Challenge us with these important eternal truths. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.